hi everybody. Just want to wish everybody a happy CNY from the Law family. Uh, my dad is not here this week and he's in Penang. So I send his regards uh, on behalf on him. Okay, so, so I want to give a short introduction. I'm Joel, I'm Pastor Tim's son, and I haven't been around. And I want to give you a mini update. So right now, I'm actually a missionary uh, right here in Shizuoka. So if you can see, it's between Tokyo and Osaka. And the place where I highlighted uh, is the place where I'm at, okay? And Shizuoka is known for a few things. First off, it's where Mount Fuji is. So on a clear day, I can get to see Mount Fuji. And not only that, uh, Shizuoka produces some of the best matcha and green tea in the world. And also, we are famous for unagi. So that's just a quick update. But today, my dad requested me to speak on my journey on how I became a missionary, okay? And today, because of that, the sermon is going to be slightly different from usual. It's going to be more autobiographical, less Bible in that sense. And this is something I'm somewhat uncomfortable with because most of the time, I'm preaching a lot from the Bible. And it's easy because you just got to speak out, spit out facts and just statistics, you know, that kind of thing. But today, I'm going to be sharing from my life the journey I took. And because of that, right, sometimes you might get the impression like, wow, Joel has it all figured out. Like, wow, you know, God's so clear in his life. But I want you to know, as I share my story, uh, I have questions still that I don't have answers to. So today, my sermon title is called, How Did I Get Here? And hopefully, at the end of the sermon, I can answer that question and also help you to get there. So the question, how did I end up becoming a missionary? You know, being a missionary is something that never crossed my mind. There are two questions that people ask me when they discover I'm Pastor Tim's son. The first question is, Joel, what's it like to be a pastor's kid? Then I smile, I say, you know, I'm glad to follow my dad because my dad always eats good food and he always gives me the leftovers, okay? The second thing that normally comes after is this. Joel, do you ever plan to become a pastor? And I have an answer. I say, no, 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 no. Now, people ask me that. So when it comes to being, or being confronted with the thought of being a pastor, I have an opinion. But never once in my life, somebody asked me whether I wanted to become a missionary. To put it bluntly, I was indifferent. It's not whether you hate it or love it, it's indifferent. In the same way that you, you relate with an ant, you're indifferent to the existence of an ant, I was indifferent to the idea of becoming a missionary. So as I look back from my vantage point right now, and I trace back my history, I ask myself, what were the threats that led me to where I am today? How, from somebody who was totally indifferent to becoming a missionary, became a missionary? And one thing I do is that I have a diary, so I record all my thoughts. And it was an interesting process because I looked at my life and traced my steps in terms of how I got here. So how did it all begin? You know, I'm a missionary to Japan, but actually, it didn't start that way. It started, if I would all boil it down, to the origin, origin point, Vietnam 2016. I was, uh, I graduated from doing A-levels, and during that time, I had a gap year. So, Jocelyn 
invited me to go on a mission trip to Vietnam. And this was an interesting mission trip. So right here, I've got the picture of the team. Okay? Now, if you notice, it's not all Malaysians. There are actually four Japanese people in the team. You see, during that point, Jocelyn was dating a Japanese guy, and they met in School of World Missions. So they wanted to do something together. So Jocelyn brought half the team from Malaysia, and Tony brought half the team from Japan. And we did together a joint mission work in Vietnam. And the team composition uh, for the Japanese people contained of three people around my age who just recently graduated from doing their high school, and then Tony. And during my time there, I interacted with them, and I really got intrigued uh, with Japanese culture and all that it entails. And prior to that, I had no experience about anything Japanese. Okay? So I want to share you the next picture, and I want to highlight a bit about Tony. Okay? So Tony now is Jocelyn's husband, and Tony is a fascinating character. Tony speaks perfect Japanese and English, and that is a rare thing. And how he learned English was he learned English through rap, rappers, American rappers, and basketball commentators. So he would play the basketball commentator, he, re he would rehearse it. And he achieved the highest level of fluency that a Japanese could achieve. In fact, his English is better than mine, and he corrects my grammar. Okay? Yeah, so it's really good, okay? So, uh, now, during the time in Vietnam, I stayed in the same room with him. So at night, we spent our time talking, and we talked until 2 a.m., and each time was a unique topic about how he sees certain aspects. Uh, and that, that's where I learned a bit more about Japan and what it means. So I realized Christians in Japan is a rare breed. This is the religious affiliation. You can see, uh, for the Christian population, it's 1.5%, with the rest being Shinto, and Buddhism. And according to some stats, now it's approximately uh, 1%. So finding a Christian in Japan, it's quite rare. And not only that, uh, when we think about other Asian countries, so for example, China. China, there's a strong persecution element, yet we know that the underground church is thriving. But in Japan, there's no such thing as persecution. Everybody is free to believe what they believe. Yet, the Christian population in Japan has always remained at 1%. So that was like interesting. And talking to Tony, Tony was not born in a Christian family. Tony, uh, American missionaries came over, reached out to him, and that's how he became a Christian. So that was unique as a specimen because there's very little conversions in that sense. Now, not only that, we know that Japan has one of the most unique cultures. And so I just want to share quickly. Uh, this is from the culture map. And basically, this talks about uh, how different countries rank on the spectrum of culture. I don't want to go into detail, but I just want to highlight a few things that make Japanese culture unique. Okay, right here, you can see, you just follow JP. Here, you've got high context and low context cultures. A low context culture is, for example, American culture. When they say low context, it means that you don't need to infer a lot from the non-verbal communication to get the point across. So, for Americans, they just, everything they want to mean, they'll just put it in the sentence. Whereas, for Japanese culture, it's slightly different. It's a high-context culture, which means that 
there's a lot of things you have to read the air. And from reading the air, you can really determine what the other person is feeling. So, uh, my friend uh, told me of this story whereby he was having dinner with his boss. And the boss kept on saying that he was going to pay the bill. But the boss, throughout the next one hour, did not stand up and offer to actually pay the bill. So, the worker, oh, he had to infer that this was just a custom, so he actually had to pay the bill at the end. So, it's this kind of unique setting. And I want to point out, this does not mean that Japanese people are not clear. It is high context. To them, in their culture, they can read the verbal, non-verbal cue and signs, and to them, it's clear. But for people who are not in the culture, it's not clear. Okay, second one. First, second one, hierarchical. Hierarchical. So they have a strong hierarchy uh, dynamic. So uh, this is slightly interesting because most of the time, I'm working sort of in a Malaysia company which is quite flat in terms of hierarchy. Because of that, I can talk to boss and I'm willing to exchange ideas and give feedback. But in Japan, it doesn't work as such. So there's a strong hierarchical uh, difference. Okay. And lastly, uh, conflict avoidance. So avoids confrontation and confrontational. Japan is on the very avoid confrontation uh, spectrum. So I discovered this quite interestingly uh, in Vietnam. So I was a campus student and I was talking to the other campus students. And you know, this is slightly embarrassing, but I was asking them, what's your love life? Who do you like? You know, just the typical campus kind of conversations. And for some reason, they just didn't answer. In fact, they tai chi the, the question. They just avoid, avoid, avoid. And I, then I realized to, later on that asking about love life in their culture was somewhat offensive because you're prying too much for details. But instead of confronting me, they just avoid the conflict. And those are the things that I learned. And this really intrigued me uh, in many different ways. And after my trip to Vietnam, I was more intrigued with the Japanese people that I worked with and did ministry with compared to the Vietnamese people. So after that trip, what happens was I grew close with Tony and we have a strong continued relationship. So Tony at that point was dating Jocelyn and he would come over to uh, Malaysia to Pak Thor, and I would always intentionally try to find him and meet him because I really liked our conversations. So uh, just quickly, few things. In 2017, uh, we were at uh, Philippines conference, so we were there and we met together. And on the picture on my left is when Tony and Jocelyn got married in 2017, and I, I was glad I was invited because I was the last person on the list. Okay, yeah. And this is the fun part. It is not Jocelyn who invited me. It was Tony who invited me. So I'm very happy, okay? So what happened was in 2018, Tony and Jocelyn gotten married. They decided, hey, let's get a Malaysian team to come over. So I'm already on for it. So I decided to go. So in Japan, okay, in 2018, I went. And this is the team I went with. So uh, quickly, okay, I just realized I haven't pointed out who Tony is. This is Tony. This is Jocelyn. Okay, and this is me. And guys, I got to say, man, trying to find pictures where I don't look ugly was really difficult for me, okay? <laughs> so, uh, this is where I really started doing groundwork there. And I was in their culture and I was doing uh, mission work. And during that time, we were working with campus ministry. And I can't, I, and I won't forget this one moment 
whereby uh, I was working with Tony and we were doing kids ministry together. So we would, I would present the content in English and Tony would present it in Japanese and, and Japanese. So what happens is I didn't complete my sentence, okay? And as speaking, you know, sometimes it's natural to not complete your sentence. So what happens is Tony started looking at me and urged me to complete the sentence. I was thinking, why? And then I discovered the quirks of Japanese language, okay? So talk a bit about Japanese language a bit, okay? And right now, I'm learning Japanese. When we talk about the difference between English and Japanese, there's a huge linguistic difference. For an English speaker to learn Japanese language, according to the US government, where they get their operatives to study different languages, Japan Japanese, Arabic, and Chinese are the hardest category of languages to learn. And one of the features is that for English, we are a subject, verb, object language. Meaning, I eat apple. I subject eat, the verb apple is the last thing. So the object comes at the very end. But in Japanese, it's different. It is the subject, the object, and the verb at the end. So in this one is watashi wa nihongo ga suki desu. Suki here is the verb. And this gives this creates a very interesting dynamic. So I just want to point out, this right here is the difference between Japanese and English for a single sentence, okay? Here, you got, I want to try on a suit I saw in a shop that's across the street from the hotel. The only commonality here is watashiwa, and then it's just entirely the inverse, you, as you can clearly see. And I always joke like this. So let's say you want to confess to a girl, or you know, you want to do that. Right? You can say, watashiwa, me, you, and then you see the girl's reaction. Oh, wow, she's, she's frowning. Then I just say, we're just friends, you know? So now, in, but, okay, in longer sentences, right, because the way you structure the language is the verb comes at the end, and also the negation comes at the end. So because of that, right, you can really adjust the verb that you end with based on the person's reaction. And because of this, you sort of reinforce the collective culture in Japan by which you want to appease the other person. Whereas in English, you need to commit to the verb before you see the reaction. So if I want to confess a girl in English, I need to say, I like, then you need to see the girl's face, but you, you said it already. So it's this dynamic that intrigues me. So during that time there, I was doing campus ministry with them. And I sort of fell in love in terms of the culture and the people there. And I really enjoyed it. So what happened was after the trip, I was determined to go back there and to sort of do not a long-term mission trip, but a, sort of a short term and just be there and be present to help Tony and Jocelyn. However, in 2020, we all know what happened. The pandemic hit. And during this time, I graduated uh, from university. And I then, at this time, found a job. And during this time, it was feasibly not possible for me to do mission work in Japan, even on a sort of a short-term basis, like going there for two to three weeks, because that would require me to take leave. So, uh, life as usual, and I just continue to be faithful in what I do. However, once the pandemic ended, there were a few changes that happened. First off, my company started allowed remote work. And then, immediately, I had the idea, was it possible for me to work remotely from Japan and uh, still work remotely for Japan, but still be in this, my current company. And so that idea started floating around. 
And then I talked to my boss, and my boss was perfectly okay with it. So what happens was, it became feasible for me to explore such a particular arrangement. So in 2022, I determined that I can go over. I actually have like the possible work arrangement and also the funds necessary so I can survive. So I was waiting for the day that Japan would open their borders. And the day that it announced, at 6 a.m. in the morning, I immediately bought my tickets. Four hours later, the Japanese flight tickets shot up by 200%. From 2,000 ringgit, it went to 6,000 ringgit. And this is no surprise. Everybody wants to go to Japan. So after four years, this was me, and this is the first picture I took with Tony and Justin uh, when I was there. And my agreement to them uh, was to be there for approximately three months under the tourist visa. So this is more picture. Uh, this is one of my favorite pictures. This here is Naslamak. Just got to cook the, the food so I can survive there, you know? And during this time, I was doing uh, campus work and uh, staying with them and living with them and just doing church-related stuff. And it was an interesting experience for me because I grew to love it and I also grew to love the people there. And this was sort of the accumulation of all the experiences that I had prior interacting with Japanese people and also uh, the time just understanding their culture. And I won't forget, uh, it was in the middle of this, my, this trip that on one of the days, I felt as if God asked me this question, Joel, if you're willing, if you, I ask you to stay here, will you be willing to stay here? And this thought came to me by surprise. And I was like 60% certain that it was from God and 40% uncertain. Nonetheless, I put it aside. Two days later, one day I came back, I was doing devotion, and I felt that God was going to do something. Tony came, comes back into the house, and again, I stay with them. And then Tony asked me, hey, Joel, you know what? You've been quite effective here. Why not we consider to extend your trip for another three months? Now, this is where it dawned upon me. Suddenly, the question to become a longer-term missionary it just came to me. And again, up until this point, I was just going with the flow, taking small steps, just, just going with the flow. And then this was the first time where I really since, uh, encountered the question of becoming a missionary. And during that time, I had to make a decision in my life whether this was something I wanted to continue to pursue or not. But in my heart, I knew that for me, if I do not pursue this, I felt it was to be an act of disobedience to God. So I decided to continue. So in 2023, I went back there the second time under tourist visa. So while all this was happening, right, we discovered that as a tourist, you cannot uh, be in Japan for more than six months in a year. Though for the Malaysian visa, we can be there 90 days, but for one trip. So I maximum can took two trips in total. So what happened was the church, hey, Joel, let's help you apply for a visa. So that's where I start, started my visa application process. So I went there as a mission, uh, under tourist visa first, and then the church started helping me to apply for the missionary visa. And then in the middle of 2023, in around April or June, I got the missionary visa. 
And then that's how I saw I became a missionary. So I just want to cover some of the other activities I do to go into more detail. So uh, some of the things I do, one of the things I do is I preach. And I preach in English and Tony translates to Japanese. And one of the things I have to get used to is this. Uh, first off, I need to use simple English because Tony cannot translate if I use too complex English. So, and secondly, when I come back to Malaysia and start preaching, I'm so used to having a translator that I'm not used to speaking at this constant pace constantly, okay? Ah, this is my second proudest picture, okay? This is CNY, and we did an open house event, and me and Justin cooked seven dishes for 20 people. So, got all the ingredients, yeah, okay? And some of the other things, what happens is we do campus-related events, and if you notice, I blur the pictures of some of the people. And this is actually part of the culture. So in Japanese culture, people are uncomfortable if you share their faces uh, on social media. And this was something I had to learn. So out of respect, that's why I blur the faces. So you can see me, Tony, and then this some of me interacting with some of the campus students. And not only that, okay, what happens is I uh, was invited to do their campus camp to do some of the games and activities. So I got Malaysia pride, need to do something good, okay? So I, I last time used to serve in teens ministry, and actually I got inspired by one of the recent teens event, uh, campus activities, and I stole the idea and just executed it for uh, the Japanese uh, campus students. So this is some of the pictures that I take. Uh, this are uh, the Japanese, this is the entire camp. And again, this is all of Japan, all the church's youth come together for the event, okay? So this is the church outreach events we do. This is our Christmas service on the right, okay, right here. So this is the senior pastor, and this is sort of the hall. And again, in Japan, church, churches are just generally smaller. It can be 20 to 30 people for a single church. And on this side here is our campus-related Christmas event, outreach event. And this, lastly, right here, uh, is the church that I belong to, and these are like the core people right there. So during my time, right, in Japan, as I was doing more ministry-related stuff, I guess there are more questions that I have. And certain things that I overlooked prior, I start to question right now. So for example, what does the Bible have to say about culture? And should we share the same culture as Christians? When we think of heaven, do we all imagine that we are dressed the same? Do we all act the same? And this was a question that I had to ask, I had to ask to myself, because in Japan, the culture is entirely different from where I come from. So for example, just now I showed the framework. They are a collectivist culture. How does heaven look like? Will it be a collectivist culture? Is it an individual culture? And as Christians, should we all follow the same culture? Like at the end of the day, if I'm there as a missionary, am I trying to make them like me? And I come from a Malaysian, Christian, Chinese church culture. So should, as I evangelize, should I make them turn more like me? Or how does that entire question play out? Here's the second one. What is the gospel? And how far can you contextualize the gospel before you lose its meaning? So one of the ways we share gospel in Malaysia is the bridge. We talk about there's man, there's God, there's a separation between man and God. And then there's sin, and then sin leads to death, and Jesus is the one that reconciles. But in Japanese culture, two, dif two difficulties. First, their conception of God is very human kind of God. In fact, 
there's a video essay on YouTube whereby it talks about how in most Japanese games, the final boss is killing God himself. So, uh, and one of the interesting ways it plays out is in one day, Tony's son, Joe, came back and he told us that there was, for, to open the new swimming pool for the school, they had somebody dress up as the water god in Japanese culture to bless the pool. So the water god dressed up as a costume, came in, took water, and sprinkled on all the students just to bless the pool. So the nature of God is so different from us. So for us, when we think of God, we think of divine, superb, can never be replicated in terms of any image. But for them, they have a very human view of God. In fact, it's like the Roman gods. They fight, they, they battle each other, and because of that, the world turns. So you got these kind of questions. How can I even make them understand the concept of God in the first place? Thirdly, what does it mean to be a missionary and how can I be an effective missionary? Is being a missionary just merely sharing the gospel? Or is it me being nice and feeding the students? What does it mean when Paul goes around and starts establishing churches? And how, as a Christian, should emulate Paul? So these kind of questions were the things I'm thinking about. Fourth, what forms of evangelizing is considered ethical? You know, in persecuted countries where the gospel is not allowed to be shared, one of the things that Christians do is they start English club. So English club, they will do the English club, and then from there, they then preach the gospel at some point. But in, non, uh, in non-persecuted countries, uh, you do English club, right? So for example, you, I invite you to an event, but at the end, I suddenly show you, oh, do you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Is that considered ethical? Because when you agreed to join me, you were expecting only studying English. So these are the questions that I wrestled with. And I still wrestle with these questions. But these are the questions I would have not asked if I was never there. Nonetheless, I don't have answers to all of it, but I got one or two sort of insights. And these are the things that is actually con- convicted me in terms of uh, becoming a missionary. I want to go to cover two particular stories in the Bible. The first is the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. When we talk about culture and where it comes from, biblically, it all goes back to the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, what happened was that men were united and they wanted to reach God. So they built a temple, a ziggurat, to try to reach the heaven. And then what happens? God said, okay, no, cannot. And what happens is God sent a spirit and confused all the languages. Yeah, and Japanese came from here, like, essentially. <laughs> okay. And what happens is that because of that culture difference and language difference, people were disunited. So they all left. So when you think of the Old Testament, right, the Jewish people is essentially a monoculture. It was a monoculture religion. People who joined the religion, they take on the Jewish identity. And again, it was also not a missional religion. They would just be happy, contented in their promised land. But what happens later on was this. In Pentecost, there was a reversal. In the upper room where God sent His Holy Spirit down to touch all the people, what happens is you find this. That different people were... Okay, I'll just read it. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is that we hear each of us in his own native language? So, in Pentecost, there was a reversal. Instead of language being the thing that divides right now, 
language is now, ex- using language, the gospel is expressed in different languages throughout all the people. And so, language is no longer a curse, but it is a blessing. And through that blessing, the gospel can be used to be expressed. And that's why, just going back to the culture question, as Christians, right, the biblical view of culture, if I could say bluntly, is that culture is not something to be discarded when we become a Christian. We still retain our culture and language when we become a Christian. But rather, when we come to know God and as we come, become children of God, our culture is then redeemed by Christ to be better versions of what they are. Meaning this, as a Malaysian, after I accept Christ, not only I become a Christian, I become a better Malaysian. As a Japanese, after I accepted Christ, it's not that I throw away my Japanese identity, I become a Japanese, a better Japanese. And this is the vision in Revelation that sort of paints the picture. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Meaning this, during the final vision that, that John had in the island of Patmos, is that cultures, that we will all live with our different cultures still in heaven, all expressive, all expressive, expressing, worshipping God in our different tongue and in our different culture. And that to me was a big conviction for me because as I think about reaching the Japanese people, it's not only just getting people saved, which is a part of it, but it's thinking that, hey, this culture is for God. This culture can be redeemed for Christ and even though it might not look like that right now, but as the gospel is proclaimed and the values are understood, what happens is that culture from the inside out is slowly transformed to be something that brings honour to God. And that to me was my conviction in terms of why I decided, hey, this is my land and this is where I want to build. So that is sort of how I got there. So now the question is this, how do you get there? So this is for all those who really are thinking about missions or at least it has dropped in your heart before. I wonder, as I look back at my journey, these are some of the practical steps that I took that resulted me in me being here. First thing first, me going on short-term mission trips, interacting with the different culture was a big pivotal thing in terms of my uh, journey. It is through those trips whereby I got to know people and I understand what it means to live in different cultures and also to understand how the gospel can be expressed in different cultures. Second thing, I think this is quite important. Make good quality friendships across cultures. I have Tony. And Tony, without Tony, I don't think I can be where I am today. It was true that friendship, that being that I was drawn into their culture. And thirdly, if you notice in my story, I did not take big leaps. I just take step by step. And slowly and slowly, I find myself being more, wanting to commit more and more. So I, you don't need to do something radical. Just take small steps. And lastly, I just want to end with this, you know. This is the story that God has led me on. And again, it might not look like any of your story. And all of our stories are different. We come with different strengths and weaknesses. And I guess in just the way that God leads us, it will be different. And I just want to end with this particular passage. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You know, as I reflect back at my life, 
I would have never thought I would become a missionary. I had my plans and whatnot. But I guess when God is in control, God is the one that would redirect and sometimes, I guess, plot twist you to a different place. I saw, I'm going to close this in prayer and then I'm going to pass the time to the host, okay? So everybody bow their heads, get their eyes closed. Father Lord, I come before you today. Father Lord, I just want to thank you, God, for the journey that you have led me. And Father Lord, I pray for everybody here, oh God, who has a heart for missions and who has a heart to serve you, oh God. I pray, oh God, that in the journey that they take, may you send your Holy Spirit to lead them so that they, oh God, can discover how they can be uh, to serve you and your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.